Thanks for joining me on another Beyond the Lab. I'm David Murray. Well, you've probably seen them in the bathroom of your local pub or in the toilet at one of those dodgy highway truck stops. Those vending machines plastered with promises that what they're selling will make you not only attractive, but literally irresistible to the opposite sex. All your sexual fantasies could soon come true, they claim, all thanks to a moist towelette laced with the awesomely attractive power of those miracle chemicals, pheromones. While I wouldn't blame you for being slightly dubious about the scientific claims made by a bathroom vending machine, we are discovering that what we smell can sometimes have an extraordinary effect on how we behave. And this seems to be especially true when it comes to sex. And that's why in this Beyond the Lab, we're looking at the mind-controlling potential of odours in both humans and other non-human animals. A little bit later, find out what your smelly t-shirt could be saying about you when we revisit a classic study that suggests we're not always the one calling the shots when it comes to who we decide to take home at night. But while Cupid's arrow pheromones in humans are still murky territory, there is no doubt about their power in the insect world. First up today, we're heading outside the studio to see a man about a moth. I put a spell on you. Because you're mine. I'm stalking around the halls at the Australian Museum in Sydney. If you want to find out about the spooky mating habits of the insect world, this is a good place to start. Hi, I'm Dave Britton. I'm Head of Natural Sciences and Biodiversity Conservation here at the museum. So when we talk about pheromones, we often think of them as being something that's linked exclusively to sex, the Cupid's arrow chemical. Is this necessarily the case? It's not necessarily always the case. There's quite a few pheromones which are used, say, for aggregation, so it's a way of signalling that uh, you're there and it's nice to hang out with you. And this is often seen in, say, insects that gain a defensive benefit from being grouped together because they might be distasteful or they might have spines on them. They'll produce a pheromone which encourages them to move together. We see a lot of this, these kind of patterns of behaviour in nature all over the place. Um, when did we first come to realise that maybe some of these animals, insects especially, might be communicating in ways that were invisible to us, but you know, still highly effective? Well, some of the moths which uh, produce um, sex pheromones to attract their males, so the females produce, the virgin females produce sex pheromones, they um, also happen to be some of the more spectacular moths and they're often bred in captivity because they're pretty to look at and they're nice to collect. And, and mm. examples of these would be some of the emperor moths um, in, in, in and around the world. And uh, one of these moths is quite popular for breeders in Europe and they noticed that if you had a female emerging out of a cocoon, you'd find that there'd be wild males bashing against the window trying to get into her and uh, to mate with her and even on even in appalling weather where you wouldn't think there'd be any moths flying 
these males would be turning up. So just one or two? Um, quite often many, many. So you might get 10 or 15 or 20. Um, so they're, they're very good at detecting these minute quantities of chemicals. It's almost so, sort of, I guess, supernatural ability to pick up chemicals uh, led to lots of crazy theories. And in the early days, I think some of the naturalists thought that there was some invisible electrical or magnetic field that mm. the females were emitting to attract the males. So when did we get to the point where we discovered it was actually these things that we now call pheromones that were controlling behaviour? Well, the first um, proof of a chemical structure and a chemical was extracted by a German researcher, Adolf Butendat, Mm. Um, in the 1950s and he did this from silkworms and silkworms at the time were used to manufacture silk in Europe and vast quantities of bread were bred for this purpose so he was able to get a lot of pupae and and rear the females out of them and then cut the glands out of the abdomen of the female and then go through all this painful process of extracting the different chemicals present in those um, and then testing it with males to see if he got a response Um, so it was, it was very easy to establish fairly early on that you could get a response from the glands, certain glands in the abdomen of the females, but actually what the chemical was took a lot longer. And back in those days, they didn't have the analytical equipment we take for granted now in chemical labs. So they had to process something in the order of 500,000 female moths before they got enough chemical to do a structural analysis and actually identify for the first time a chemical that was a sex pheromone mm. in a moth. So, Dave, why don't we go and have a look at the collection now and you can point out some of your favourite examples of insects which use pheromones. Sure. The back of the museum is a maze of corridors and fire stairs. I imagine that it would be hard to remember where every particular sample is. You must have a few of them. It's all organised taxonomically. Eventually, Dave leads me to a room filled with wooden cabinets in about half a dozen rows. The drawers in these cabinets are where the museum keeps its moths. Thousands of them. I notice as soon as we walk into the room, there's a certain smell in the uh, air. Yes, yes. So well, that, the, the key reason for that is for pest management. So mm. and traditionally, entomology collections used fumigants to... Well, they're not actually fumigants. They're deterrents to prevent pests getting into the collection. And the, the deterrent of choice in most of them was naphthalene. Okay, and that's what you can smell in this area. It reminds me of my grandmother's house, yeah. Exactly, and it was a charming side effect of returning home from work each night and having people in the train sniffing you. Um, (laughs) So, and to do that, we put naphthalene into the edge of each drawer that has dry specimens in it. um, You can see a bit of it left in there, and this is residual because we stopped using this about uh, five or six years ago uh, due to some perceived uh, health occupational health and safety risks. All right, so when we were talking about moths that uh, pick up on pheromones, uh, do you have any particular favourites in the collection here? Um, I think if I can locate them well, the the moths that probably led people to first notice pheromones were emperor moths, and Australia has got quite a few sort of charismatic ones, and the one that most people are familiar with is the emperor gum moth. And because uh, they're big, they've got big mm. eye spots in the wings, and they, and they often turn up at people's um, house lights. They still hang around in most of the areas which have still got a bit of natural bushland in parks and so on. So and they're lovely. They've got mm. these beautiful orange spots on the back of their wings. Mm. 
Now, um, I should give you a test here. Which one do you think are the males and do you think are the females? Okay, I reckon the males are the ones with the smaller abdomens. Mm-hmm. The key thing that you can really spot with uh, males and females in these moths is that the males have these elaborate feathery antennae, whereas oh. the females have got very simple sort of filament-like ones. So that is to a, make it easier for them to pick up pheromones yeah. released yeah, by the so females? You, you greatly increase the surface area of your antenna by having that, mm. and you can uh, pick up molecules of pheromone in the air much, much easier. So, And that's a characteristic that's shared in quite a few... Um, unrelated groups of moths where the males have got elaborate antennae and the females have got simple antennae. Mm. And you also find this in, in other insect groups like uh, flies and beetles. And I can show you another one which is possibly even more over the top. Um, this one here. Oh, look at them. That's a huge difference. Yes, these are um, a species of wood moth that occurs very commonly in the Sydney region where there are grass trees. The, the caterpillars feed in, in grass trees in Xantharia and um, they fly in also very oddly in the middle of winter. So in June, July is the time you find them bashing around in your windows late at night. So the difference between the antenna of these ones is, is enormous. Uh, the females there, it's about a centimetre and a half long but very thin whereas the, the males um, almost look like they're holding bird feathers on the top of their heads. Yeah really quite beautiful. Now I'll see if I can find some gypsy moths. There we go. These are gypsy moth. Um, now gypsy moth in the US is introduced from Europe and is one of their most significant forest pests. Uh, they defoliate entire forests and they would undoubtedly be a serious pest if they ever got into Australia. So there's been quite a lot of research into the pheromone of this species for monitoring purposes and also for trying to control them through mating disruption. Um, mating disruption hasn't worked at all with it, but um, monitoring it has been quite successful. Um, I imagine a lot of researchers spend, uh, if, if it's that important, they'd spend a lot of time researching it. Yes, indeed. And, and some of the people uh, have been exposed to so many pheromones. I heard a story once of someone who got out of that area of research and then entered a forest many years later and was still attractive to male gypsy moths. He'd absorbed enough of the synthetic pheromone they were using for monitoring to be um, attractive to males. <laughs> Some very confused moths. Yes. Or a very confused entomologist. How many insects do you actually have in the collection here? We have, in entomology alone, we have an estimated over about six million specimens. <laughs> However, uh, a lot of those are in jars of unsorted material where we, we're estimating how many there are because they're literally black with tiny flies that have been caught in traps. Okay. Um, it's the, the world's worst jelly bean guessing competition and I've, I've never wanted to count them and I wouldn't make anyone else count them. So it's, a, it's an estimate. I imagine there's a, that's a job for an intern at some stage, yes. a, a budding... <laughs> budding research scientist. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I, I have another species I'll just like to oh, yeah, great. look at. Um, this one's appeared in a few blogs of recent times and uh, online because the males, and you can't see it in any of these pin specimens, but li the live males evert this amazing structure from the tip of their abdomen. It looks like it's about almost um, two and a half times as long as the, the moth itself. Okay. Bright pink with black, black little black spines on it, and it's called a coromata. And what it is is a structure for releasing pheromones. And, and 
In most species, the female produces a pheromone and the males are attracted to it. In this one, the males produce pheromones and the females are attracted to it. It's the reverse. And uh, the way that it works is that a group of males will sit together and signal and the females will pick the male that is the most competent at signalling. Um, but it's a really extraordinary structure to look at. The moth itself is quite attractive. It's got a red and, red and black abdomen and sort of pinky pinky forewings with black stripes on it. Um, and it's found all over Europe, uh, sorry, all over Asia and, and North Australia. It's, it's quite a common species. I guess I have one final question for you. Why moths and why pheromones? What attracted you to them in particular? If I was to be honest, an industry, an industry scholarship at the time. <laughs> I've always been interested in moths. I was a moth collector before I started working on pheromones and it's given me yet another insight into uh, insect biology. Big thanks to Dave Britton at the Australian Museum for showing me around their moth collection. Now, while the use of pheromones by insects to attract mates is well established, how humans might use them is less clear. So many factors go into attraction that a single Cupid's arrow-like chemical drawing us together unconsciously like, well, moths to a flame, seems implausible to many of us. But that isn't to say that odour doesn't play a role in our sex lives. Hello. This is my friend Caroline. A story about a recent breakup of hers got me thinking. Now, I've been told some strange things by escaping partners. It's not you, it's me. I just want to be on my own for a while. We can still be friends. But in Kaz's case, she was given a breakup excuse I don't think I've ever heard before. So we'd been dating and living together until we broke up for kind of a variety of reasons, one of which was that he mentioned that there was one thing that kept him from wanting to um, be with me indefinitely. That's a strange thing to say. There's one thing. Did he tell you what it was at the time? No, he didn't. He said that he... Um, we're having the conversation actually over the phone and he said that he, he would only tell me in person. <laughs> well, what did you think it would be? Um, I actually thought it would be something around our kind of backgrounds or our morals or the directions we were heading in life. Or oh, we, I guess completely kind of, understandable things. <laughs> yeah, it kind yeah. of made him more reasons, like issues that I could have had. Yeah, and then I guess I didn't see him again for several months. And when you person. did see him again, did you press the issue? I did, which I wasn't sure if I would, but it kind of came up. And so I, you know, I did say, um, you know, what's the thing? I let it go to a certain degree, but obviously my curiosity was peaked. <laughs> and and um, when he did reveal it, what was it? It was that he didn't feel that our um, that our sense matched our my, my basic body odor. <laughs> okay, just to clarify, you're a normal woman. You you bathe. You're a clean, normal person, right? Yeah, and quite um, quite specifically did clarify that it wasn't that I felt bad. Oh, that's good. Or, or, <laughs> or that um, that I was in some way abhorrent smelling or strange smelling in any way. Just that you know we all had our individual kind of body odor, and um, 
we all do and that he didn't feel that, that ours matched or that mine was the right one for him. All right, so this is just one case. But there is research out there that suggests there could be something to the feedback that Caroline received. This is Professor Manfred Malinsky. I'm a professor at the University of Kiel in northern Germany and the director of the Max Planck Institute for Immunobiology in Plön. Manfred has spent a career investigating what drives attraction in humans and other non-human animals. Now, you may think of yourself as a legs man, or maybe you say that the most important thing in a partner is a good head of hair. But Manfred has a different idea. Biologists do not understand why most animals and plants reproduce sexually, because it's so inefficient. And, and to make a long story short, the only solution we can offer is that we and all the other animals and plants in, are in a never-ending arms race with our infectious diseases. This is why we reproduce sexually and all the other animals as well. Anything else comes second. So what people think is important for nature is is not very important. Manfred's research has centred on something called the major histocompatibility complex. That's a bit of a mouthful, so we say MHC for short. This is a collection of genes that control a major part of our immune system. They code for cell proteins that help the body protect itself from pathogens like viruses, bacteria and parasites. But not everyone's MHC is the same. We as a human species are highly polymorphic for our immunogenes. There are more than 1,000 different gene versions in each population that has been studied. So you and me, we obviously differ completely in our immunogenes. You got 6 to 8 and I got 6 to 8 and I think we will not overlap. These genes, which we call immunogenes, change from person to person, which means immunity changes from person to person as well, which explains why something which might make your friend feel slightly ill can make you feel like you're just arrived on death's door. This tells us that the more different MHC molecules you have, the better it is. The more likely it is that there's one among them which can pick a a peptide from a new infectious disease. So the more, the better. But what does all this have to do with Caroline being told she didn't smell right? Back in the mid-90s, Manfred oversaw what has since become one of the classic experiments in human sexual behaviour the infamous smelly t-shirt experiment. Now, the original t-shirt test wasn't actually run by Manfred, but by his PhD student, Klaus Wanderkind. It built on some existing research in mice that was looking at mate selection, these MHC immune genes, and olfactory chemical signals. In the late 70s, some papers were published with inbred strains of mice. It was, I think, a surprising result that uh, a mouse prefers a partner that has other immunogene versions than the choosing mouse herself. And she could do it in the same way when she was presented only with the urine of these potential partners, which means mouse can smell immunogenes and potential partners. And this is where Klaus and his T-shirt experiment comes into the story. 
To find out if humans do something similar, Klaus wrangled together almost 150 volunteer students from the university in Bern. First up, he had them immune tight to work out which immunogene versions they were carrying. But that was just the beginning of it. So we had these volunteers tested. Then we provided the males with a package of containing two cotton T-shirts and uh, some perfume-free shower bars and uh, soap and a list of rules that they have to live order-free, almost order-free for two days, so no garlic, no smoking, no alcohol, and so forth, and then uh, take a shower with these special shower bars and then sleep one night within each of these cotton T-shirts. After each volunteer had deposited enough of their natural body odour onto their respective T-shirts, they popped them into plastic bags, sealed them up and delivered them to the researchers. And it was now up to the women to try and sniff out their perfect immunogenic match. Each woman was given six sweaty, smelly, blokey T-shirts to sniff, three from men with similar MHC profiles to their own and three from men who were completely different. And then they were alone in a room and were asked to judge each single T-shirt whether the smell was attractive or awful. Once all the women had enough of sniffing dirty laundry, Klaus and the other researchers analysed the results, and they weren't that surprised by what they found. The T-shirt test had revealed that the same relationships between odour, attraction and immune genes that they saw in mice also occurred in humans. So these women preferred, liked the order best that came from T-shirts worn by men which were as MHC dissimilar as possible. And we asked uh, to provide us with two T-shirts from each each male. And one situation, his order was evaluated as being pleasant and he was dissimilar. And in the other situation, when he was similar, his order was evaluated as being non-pleasant. So the uh, immunogenes of the receiver determined whether the order of a person is attractive or non-attractive. The T-shirt test was a big leap in our understanding of what drives attraction in humans. It suggests that when it comes to deciding who to take home at night, it's not just the more obvious visual and social cues that play a role. Airborne chemical signals are also involved, helping to guide us toward our perfect immunogenic partner in the hope that any little love children which might result have the best range of immunogenes and immune protection possible. Yeah, uh, this is unconscious, so you do not know that you go for smell. But uh, it might turn out that uh, somebody to whom you have been attracted from a distance turns out to be uh, unattractive when you come close. And we have this saying, at least, uh, in, in German, I can't smell that person. Maybe <laughs> this is the reason. This is subconscious. You, you do not understand why you do not like that person, although the look is perfect. So smell comes first, and if smell is okay, then you look at uh, all these other things. Of, of course, it is important that uh, a potential partner is not too old. It doesn't help if the perfect smell comes from a person who is 80 years old. So use is important and health is important and all that. But smell, I think, in 
and fish and other vertebrates it has been studied and many different vertebrate species now they all go for MHC dependent smell and it's very important for them so maybe there was a genuine scientific reason behind Caroline's body odor experience maybe her odor sensitive partner was actually picking up on a fundamental incompatibility in their immune gene profiles or maybe it's simple Thanks for being with me on another Beyond the Lab. Remember, you can download all of our programs from Editor's Choice on the ABC website. Or even better, look for us on SoundCloud and subscribe to Beyond the Lab ABC. You'll get every program as soon as it's released. I'm David Murray. I hope you can join me next time we go Beyond the Lab. ABC Local Radio.